as we have uh, <clears throat> just sung there, the uh, world leaves its uh, possessions to its offspring. You can't take it with you. It won't satisfy ultimately, but our delight is in the thought, the reality of waking uh, even when we die to see God face to face. And so we have something far more precious, and we're going to read about that great gift here in John chapter 4 today. Uh, in John chapter 3, uh, we looked at Nicodemus and uh, the story of Jesus ministering to this man who was uh, quite an impressive individual. He was a member of the council. He was a religious teacher. He was a, a doctor, as it were, and uh, he came to Jesus by night, and Jesus taught him about uh, the new birth and the need for this work of God. And then in chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman. And you know that the Samaritans were the half-breeds. These were the people who uh, lived in the middle part of the land of Palestine. Uh, Jesus uh, would have had to uh, traverse uh, that area going from Galilee to Judea or uh, back and forth. And uh, many Jews would actually walk around it because they didn't want to be uh, with the Samaritans who had uh, been brought in to fill the land when the Assyrians had taken the northern ten tribes captive in the year 722. Uh, so they uh, took out the, the strength of the people, carried them away captive, and brought in some uh, riffraff to uh, uh, fill in, and they did so, and uh, had been there for these hundreds of years, and the Jews didn't like them. Uh, it's said that many Jews would even, when they said the word Samaritan, would spit after they said it, uh, just as an indication of their disdain for this group of people. But what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus here in this story interacting with this Samaritan woman, and it's one of those texts in one way that hardly needs to be preached. We could just read it, and it would be sufficient. So we are going to read it, and then we will look at it further. But uh, bow your heads with me now, if you would, before we read this marvelous story. Lord, it is a marvelous story, and we thank you for the joy and the delight that it brings to us, and also the hope, because uh, we come today as a thirsty people, Lord, and we need living water. So we pray that as uh, your word is read, that your spirit would be at work, and that this refreshment would just gush all over us that it would sanctify us, that it would give us new life, and that it would cause us to grow. And most of all, we pray that it would cause us to see Jesus for who he truly is. We pray this in his name. Amen. This is God's word, John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to, the t to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call, your cousin, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled to see that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. You've probably seen a lot of thirsty people this week. Some of them have probably been small people who have come into your kitchen and they've looked up having come from the outside and simply said, I'm thirsty. 
And others of you who have uh, gone to the state fair and you've been thirsty and you walked over to a, a place where they were selling water for about $182 a cup or whatever the price is, and you got it because you were thirsty. Others have been thirsty in other ways as well. You've been in boardrooms where you've seen people who are thirsty for more profits, or you've been in the classroom uh, where you've seen people who are thirsty to acquire more knowledge, or you've seen people at concerts who are thirsty to hear songs and to, to lay hold of a story and a narrative that will help them to experience life more fully. You've seen people who are uh, thirsty for relationships and for attention. There is a, a deep longing in the heart of every human soul for more than we have, for more than we possess, for more than we are. And the scripture tells us that there's no one who seeks for God. And this is why Thomas Aquinas, he said, there, there is a sense, however, in which people are seeking not for God, but they're seeking for the good things that God gives to try to fill the void in their souls. And this is what we see going on here with this woman uh, that Jesus meets in Samaria. She came to a well because she was thirsty. And Jesus is the one who in this context, in this story, shows her that he's here to provide far more than she ever expected with this simple plea to everyone who would hear this story, that you would drink deeply of the Lord Jesus Christ today, that your soul would be refreshed as you would drink of living waters. So let's see more of what these living waters are. Uh, the story unfolds and it's just this beautiful narrative. The first thing we see is that Jesus gives living water because he's the fount of it all. He gives living water because he is the fount of it all. Uh, Jesus at noon, uh, the sixth hour by their uh, counting, was sitting beside the well. And if you've been in the Middle East in the middle of the day like this, you know it is incredibly hot. And so here he is. The disciples have gone into town to see if they can scrounge up some food. And Jesus is alone at the well. And lo and behold, there is a solitary woman who comes to the well. Now, this communicates several things. Uh, first of all, uh, she is a woman who is alone. Uh, we learn later in the story that she is not the most reputable character in town, having uh, been married multiple times. And uh, it's normal that the women would come to the well to get water early in the day. The, the fact that she is here in the middle of the day, presumably trying to avoid all of the other women who would be chattering about her or be condescending to her, she's avoiding all of them by coming at the worst possible time of the day. She is from Samaria, a Samaritan, as we've already noted, that would have been a, a source of disdain to most any Jew. And furthermore, she was a woman. In social rank and standing, she was pretty much at the, the bottom of the heap. And yet, what does Jesus love to do? He, as the one who is the fount of all life, comes to people just like her. And he engages in this discussion. And what does he say to her? Well, he, he appeals to her sense of, of sympathy. Say there are a couple of ways you can gain friends, right? You can either do something for someone, or you can ask them to do something for you. And that's what Jesus does here. He says in verse 7, give me a drink. And the woman says to him, uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, she knew that something is off right out of the gate here in this interaction and this discussion. 
Why is Jesus asking her for a drink? Well, it's reasonable that Jesus would need a drink because, uh, as we've seen, though he is fully God, he is also fully man. And we see here that, uh, as the story has already unfolded, that Jesus is wearied from this journey. He's there in the heat of the day, and he is thirsty. But Jesus, in asking for this drink, is preparing to reveal to her that he's far more than a thirsty man. And so he says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman obviously is curious about all of this, and it's not sinking in, and she looks around, and she uh, says, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? She thinks there's some sort of joke perhaps being played upon her. Jesus' disciples probably had carried into town the little uh, small uh, leather-like bucket that a lot of travelers would have carried that they'd be able to drop down this 100-foot well to get water. And here Jesus is asking for a drink because he doesn't have uh, a bucket with which to draw this kind of water. And the woman notices this and she says, who do you think you are? And are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well. He dug it those thousands of years ago, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's a very down-to-earth sort of woman here, even thinking about the animals who have drunk from this well, the water that came from this well. But Jesus, then in verse 13, begins to expand more and more upon what he's just revealed in verse 10. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman is starting to realize that he's speaking here metaphorically of something more. Her thinking is obviously not yet mature. She doesn't fully understand, but she's beginning to grasp that she's dealing with someone special. And so she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's beginning to perhaps think about those texts of the scriptures that speak of the kind of life that comes from the Lord giving water on the earth. We see this going all the way back to creation. We see uh, the promise of the Lord sustaining the earth, even in the covenant made to Noah. And the Samaritans only received the first five books of the Bible, but it's likely that they would have known of the other books as well. And we can think of the the prophets and how much they use this kind of imagery uh, in their prophecies. Isaiah chapter 12 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God is going to be our salvation, Isaiah says, and then we're going to draw waters from those wells of salvation. The prophets, of course, had noted how the people had forsaken God, as Jeremiah notes in Jeremiah 2, 13. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's the problem that people have had through all the ages. This woman and all of the people that we have seen around us even this week. 
looking for that which will satisfy in all the wrong places. Going to cisterns that are supposed to hold the things that will bring us pleasure, but they always run dry. They always leave us thirsty again. The prophets had prophesied, however, that there is a day coming, as Isaiah prophesied in uh, chapter 44, verse 3, that I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This is what Jesus has come to fulfill here. And that's why if you look back at verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is telling her here in no uncertain terms that he is the one who is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah chapter 44, that he's the one who's come to pour water on thirsty land. And so in verse 13, he goes on to say that whoever drinks of this water, it's not going to be the sort of thing that causes you to be thirsty again. There's actually a renewal that that comes here. It's a, a water that becomes in a person, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What was unique about this well was that it was not only a well that was dug, but it was actually a spring that many feet underground that continually fed it. So it was fresher water than most, colder than most, which was part of the reason why it was so desirable. And this is why Jesus is using this kind of imagery. He's saying to this woman, and he's saying to you and to me today, that if your soul is dry and thirsty, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to find fulfillment in the relationships of your life or in your pursuit of knowledge or in your acquisition of wealth and of financial means. If you're going to find even satisfaction physically in the form of eternal life, the one place you can go is to Jesus Christ who will give you this kind of drink today. Jesus is telling the woman, if you understand who I am, You'll ask me for a drink. We're here not simply to state a proposition that Jesus is the one who gives living water because he is the fount of it all. We're here to note that Jesus is speaking to you today and he's saying, if you know who I am, what are you going to do? You're going to ask me for a drink. Do we have anyone here today who is asking Jesus for a drink? Is there anyone with this kind of response in heart that you would look at your dry and and barren life and recognize that what you need is to make a request today? That you need to plead that the one who is the source of all life would give you a drink? Well, we have to know that Jesus is the one who gives this kind of living water, but uh, he doesn't just stop there. The woman has said in verse 15, well, would you give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty or come here to draw water anymore? And Jesus presses down a little deeper because she needs to know and we need to know what we're asking for if we're asking for this kind of drink. Because so often when we ask for the stuff of this life, we we ask to fulfill our pleasures, which we know as the scripture says, isn't going to work. So what does Jesus show us next? He shows us secondly that he knows the dry condition of your soul 
and what it is that will ultimately satisfy. He knows the dry condition of your soul and what it is that you need. Jesus says very curiously here and very insensitively in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your husband. And uh, the response of the woman is quite striking, isn't it? She says, uh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, She knows she's in trouble here because what is it that Jesus knows? He knows not only that he offers this kind of water, but he knows the one who is asking for the water. And he knows how dry and how parched and how filthy, how disgusting our souls are. This woman has to see that the nature of the gift that God is giving to her is going to be necessarily connected to her sin. Because our thirst doesn't come simply from the fact that we're physical beings who sweat and then need more moisture. We're a people who are thirsty because we bear the guilt and the shame of our own sin. And we can't get that washed away and we can't have it sort of overwhelmed by being satisfied with something else. Now, some people have said here in verse 19 and 20 that the woman is changing the subject. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Is she simply trying to distract from Jesus' knowledge of the intimacy of her sin? I think Dr. Blackwood used to get it right with this passage when he noted that she doesn't, because for one thing, you'll notice that later she comes back around to the same subject. And Dr. Blackwood, at least, it was his experience that when a woman wants to change the subject, she doesn't come back around to the same subject. Uh, But this woman does, which gives us every indication that she's not setting it aside. She's probing deeper. And what is she recognizing? She's recognizing that Jesus is a prophet. And if he is a prophet, what is it he's going to know? He's going to know where we need to go to have our sins taken care of. He's going to know where it is that a woman like her needs to go to get it right. And so she says, is it, is it here on Mount Gerizim, this mountain of blessing that we read about back in Joshua chapter 8? Was that the place that Moses was talking about that really should have been the place where people gathered to worship? Or is it in Jerusalem, as the Jews say? And you can understand, this is why the Samaritans rejected everything past the first five books of the Bible, because uh, the rest of the books speak of how God chose Jerusalem as his dwelling place. Uh, The Pentateuch just tells the people that they were to be looking for that place, and it promised that on Mount Gerizim, the blessing would be pronounced in Joshua's day. And so it's a reasonable question that the woman is asking here. She wants to know, where is it that my sin can be dealt with? But Jesus answers her, again, stretching her thinking in verse 21 and stretching our thinking when he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying it's not insignificant where you worship. God did reveal his salvation through the Jews. He showed that Jerusalem was the right place to worship. But he goes on and he says in verse 23 that the hour is coming. It's now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus tells us that ultimately the place of worship is not a physical location. It's not even the revealed temple in Jerusalem, but what has Jesus come to do? He has come to be the temple of God in his flesh. And so where is it that right worship will be offered? It will be offered through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the only temple through which any person on the face of the earth can have access to the living God. And he himself would go to the cross. That temple would be torn down and on the third day raised again so that all who come to that temple might have newness of life. Do you see the life and the vitality that Jesus is offering this woman when he says, I'm here to give you a drink? What he's saying is, I am here to open to you the floodgates of heaven. I am here to bring to fulfillment Ezekiel's prophecy of how the water is going to start to flow out of the temple of God in Ezekiel chapter 47. And it's going to begin to to trickle over the threshold. And then it's going to spread out and cover the whole earth until it brings life to everyone. This is what Jesus has come to do and to be. And this is why he says the father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking people who know and recognize their own sin. And that Jesus himself is the very fountain of heaven. The one who has thrown open the gates. And so what the father is seeking from you today is that you would come to his beloved son and ask for a drink, and ask for life. Confess your sin, and acknowledge before him that he's the one with the power to cleanse, and he's the one with the power to refresh, and he's the one with the power to renew. And so the woman responds in verse 25 and says, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And we don't know exactly what's going through her mind here, but here's the guy who has just told her every single thing about her life. And you all ought to bear her testimony in view today. Jesus didn't just know everything about her. He knows everything about you. And he knows everything about me. And he knows where your mind has been this week. He knows what your lips have spoken. He knows what your hands have done. And not just the things you've done this week, but everything you've been ashamed of that you've ever done in your whole life. And even of the things that maybe you're not even ashamed of that you should be ashamed of. And he's in a position to tell you about. But there is a place where your sin can be dealt with. And that is at the true temple, which is Jesus Christ. And your thirst will be satisfied through the washing away of your sin if you would simply come and bow your heart to the Lord and you confess that sin before him and you acknowledge your great need and say, Lord, would you give me a thirsty soul? Drink today. Well, 
Thirdly, we see then that Jesus gets praise from everyone who drinks this living water. In verse 26, Jesus turns to the woman at this pivotal moment and he says, I who speak to you am he, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who can provide. And what does the woman do? Well, it doesn't tell us that she actually does anything. We just know that all of a sudden the story picks up speed as the disciples come back. They're marveling that he's talking with a woman, but nobody says anything about it. All of a sudden the woman left her water jar and went away into town uh, to, to speak to the people. Now, why did the woman leave her water jar? Uh, we don't know. Some people say, well, she's just so excited. She's so distracted. She left it. You know, at this point, I think she cared enough about Jesus to recognize he's probably still thirsty. He probably still needed the jug and he ought to have it. She didn't need it right now anyway. And what does the woman do? She goes into town and she becomes one who gives Jesus praise for everything that he's done. She says in verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And then she asks this question, can this be the Christ? Here's this poor woman. She's not like Nicodemus. She's not educated. She doesn't know much of anything, it seems, but she knows Jesus. And that's all any person needs to know to give him the praise and the glory that he's due to other people. And she knew her own sin. And she knew that her sin had been dealt with. And so for her, though her sin and her shame was known to the town, was able to run back into the town and say, hey folks, you all know about my life. I found somebody else who knows everything about me. And he's the one who is the Christ And so in verse 30, she brings all of them to Jesus, which is something that anyone who is full of living water starts to do. Uh, When a spring bubbles up in the wilderness, uh, all kinds of creatures begin to flock to that particular place because they recognize that there's life. Meanwhile, the story uh, pivots back. We see the disciples talking with Jesus saying, you got to have something to eat. Jesus says, I have food to eat you don't know about. He's living by every word that has proceeded out of the mouth of God, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Disciples, again, they're very much in the uh, same spot as this woman, just not comprehending the things that are going on. And Jesus simply says these beautiful words in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus has come to accomplish the Father's work. And he points out here that as a result, what is it that's going to happen? Well, There's going to be a great harvest and the harvesters are going to overtake the reapers. And he says to his disciples, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. See that the fields are white for harvest. And it's quite likely that what's going on here is that he's still sitting at the well. And now there's a stream of people that are starting to come down the road to them. They haven't all reached here yet. The disciples get this one pivotal moment before the crowd hits Jesus. And Jesus says, I just want you to stop and embrace this moment right here. You look and you see what's happening. One woman with one word of praise turns around a whole town. We walk around in our town at the state fair or in your workplace or on your campus or at a concert or wherever you may find yourself and the place is teeming with people, thirsty people. And what happened here when one woman, just one woman who was known mostly as a sinner, spoke of the Savior she had met. Well, we're told that the whole 
town turned. They stayed, uh, Jesus stayed several days uh, and, and the people wanted to hear more because of the women, woman's testimony and their response comes at the end of verse 42. They said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And it seems that this event stuck so much in the apostle John's mind that he uses the same term, savior of the world, in 1 John chapter 4 as well. And we just get this little glimpse into uh, how he received this word that was spoken by Jesus or or by the uh, Samaritans in response to Jesus. This is what happens, friend. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, when you know that your sins are forgiven, you become like a spring of water that is just welling up and you begin to overflow and a whole lot of other people get splashed as a result. And that's a good thing because what happens? Communities are transformed and we see the promise fulfilled that the kingdom has come because the king has come. And it's not just that the king has come to sit at the well But the king has come in the hearts of his people as he pours out thirsty water on thirsty ground. And as people begin to drink it up and they are transformed. This is the transformation that's here for you, brothers and sisters. And so would that we all would like the woman there at the well that day say, sir, give me this water to drink. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do give this water and that you give life And we pray, Lord, that you would make us thirsty for all the right things, that you would make us thirsty to know Jesus. Lord, it's such a refreshing thing where we see that in our culture, which is so dry and it's so parched. And there are so many people even here, Lord, who maybe come today and they recognize that they are in need. Lord, you promise that you're going to give to those who ask. So we pray that you would put it in the hearts of people to go to the Lord Jesus today and say, give me this drink. And then, Lord, through your word and by your spirit, we pray you'd pour it out in abundance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.